Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. And if you'll remain standing, as you're all aware, today is Palm Sunday, which marks a very familiar historical point in the life of Christ. His triumphal entry, uh, which begins the final week of his earthly life and ministry, culminating in his death on the cross on Friday. And so we're going to be looking at John's account of the triumphal entry this morning. It is the most brief of the four gospel accounts, so we'll bring in uh, things from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I'd encourage you this week to read uh, a more full account in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. In fact, it's good to read all of them in order to get the full picture. So if you'll turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 19. John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. If you'll follow along as I read now, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. Please be seated. This uh, passage of Scripture records for us a a very significant event in the life of of our Lord, uh, his earthly life and ministry, and in the history, really, of the nation of Israel. It is one of the few events in Jesus' ministry that is recorded in all four Gospels, which indicates to us its uniqueness and its importance. It's really quite unlike anything else recorded of the Lord in the Gospels. Jesus was at the end of a journey which had begun some nine months before when he purposefully began to zigzag his way through Galilee, Samaria, Perea, and then finally Judea, timing the journey so that he would be in Jerusalem for the Passover. We know from John chapter 11 that Jesus had 
raised Lazarus. And then because of the threat to his life, he had left the area. But in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we learn that Jesus was, is now back in Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem, where earlier he had raised Lazarus from the dead, a miracle that was so dramatic and so public that news of it had spread throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding area, creating an immense stir and a very hostile reaction on the part of the religious authorities who were counseling how they might kill Jesus because many of the people were believing in him. In fact, from the very beginning of his ministry, the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus because he had discredited their teaching, their theology, and their entire false religious system. And they despised him for it. And they wanted him dead. So any kind of massive demonstration that made the religious leaders think that Jesus' popularity was expanding was a threat to them and put pressure on them to stop him. I mean, it only sped up their murderous intent, but of course, Jesus knew that. And that is why up to this point, he never allowed it to take place, because it wasn't yet time for his ministry to end. His hour had not yet come. But in our text, all of that changed. According to Scripture, the religious authorities did not want to arrest Jesus and execute him on the Passover because they were afraid it would, it would uh, create an uprising among the people. But for Scripture to be fulfilled, Jesus needed to die on Passover as the Passover lamb for his people. And so our Lord orchestrates a massive public demonstration because he knew the enthusiasm of the crowds would provoke the religious leaders and provoke a crisis response on the part of the Sanhedrin. Jesus wanted them to be so threatened that they would arrest, try, and then execute him on God's divine schedule on exactly the right day according to God's divine plan, the Jewish Passover. So Jesus forces the Sanhedrin to respond on his terms and to operate on his timetable because he is in absolute and complete control. It all takes place as he intended. It is all happening according to the divine script written in heaven in eternity past. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as loudly as possible, openly and officially presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah and King. And he he forces everybody's hand. He pushes the envelope. They must either submit to him as King or reject and kill him. And so the eyes of all Jerusalem were fixed upon him because he wanted to make very clear who he is and what he had come to do. The Lord Jesus entered Jerusalem the way he did in loving obedience to the one who sent him and in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And by going into Jerusalem, the die was firmly cast. There was no turning back. This was the point of no return. The inevitable battle was about to begin. And we pick up the story in verse 9 of John chapter 12, and there we read, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
Now, in John's gospel, the term Jews usually refers to Jesus' enemies. But here in verses 9 and then again in verse 11, John is probably using it in a more general sense to refer to the common people. The Jewish people were arriving from all over the world for Passover, and and the news of Lazarus being raised had, had created a stir. And so when word got out that Jesus had returned to be with Lazarus in Bethany, a large crowd of Jewish people came out to see both of them. And of course they did. Lazarus had become something of a celebrity, and and people were naturally curious and, and eager to get a look at him. And the love of seeing something sensational sensational and and out of the ordinary is almost universal, isn't it? And so on Saturday evening, they came flocking out to Bethany. I mean, it's not every day you get to see a man who had been dead for four days, now alive, as well as getting to see the man who raised him. And Jesus' enemies were very much aware of the large crowd that flooded into Bethany to see him and Lazarus. And we read in verses 10 and 11, if you'll notice. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus' resurrection had a powerful impact upon many of the people. So as a result, we're told that Many of them were going away and believing in Jesus, literally were going away and were believing. So as a result of what they had seen with their own eyes, they were believing. And in the Gospel of John, the expression believed in him or believing in Jesus does not necessarily refer to genuine faith. But John doesn't give us any hint of that being the case on this occasion. And so we would assume then that this was was genuine faith, that these believers had become disciples in the best sense of the term. Many of them believed in Jesus on account of Lazarus. And because of this, Lazarus now became an enemy of the religious establishment. And his life and witness were a threat to them. Notice verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. The chief priests were Sadducees. And the Sadducees held many beliefs that contradicted the Word of God, two of which are very relevant to our text. First of all, they denied that there was any resurrection of the dead. Secondly, they denied that there was such a thing as life after death. They believed that the soul perished at death. But here's Lazarus, a living man who had died. And so for the Sadducees, Lazarus was a double embarrassment. Not only because he was himself a powerful argument for faith in Christ, but also he was a living disproof of their denial of any resurrection of the dead. Lazarus was a standing condemnation of their doctrine and a witness to the truth of Christ's divine power and messiahship. And so the chief priests of Israel made plans to put Lazarus to death. And they couldn't deny the fact that he had been raised from the dead. Yet these prideful, arrogant men, they refused to allow their beliefs to be changed by the undeniable facts. 
And they would rather destroy the evidence than to accept the truth and to change their minds. And they would rather commit murder than acknowledge they were wrong. I mean, this is not rational behavior, but it's what sin does. Sin produces irrational thinking and irrational behavior. One man said it certainly was worse than insane fury to endeavor to put to death one who had manifestly been raised from the dead by divine power. I mean, this is the, just the insane hatred of the human heart. They wanted to kill the man who was raised from the dead. And it just gives us an idea of, of the extreme hatred that they had for Jesus. The chief priest's blindness and, and hardness of heart caused them to sink even deeper into sin. One sin just led them to another. From the Jewish leader's point of view, they could accuse Jesus of blasphemy because he claimed equality with God, and, and, and they conclude that they'll violate the law to kill Jesus in the national interest, of course. But Lazarus had done nothing of the kind. The decision to kill Lazarus, a completely innocent man guilty of only returning from the dead, came quite naturally, though, and, and easily. Because again, one sin so quickly and so easily leads to another. And so the chief priests, I mean, think of this, the chief priests, the religious leaders of the nation, the guardians of God's law were so driven by jealousy, ambition, paranoia, and hatred that they expanded their plan to kill Jesus to include Lazarus. They wanted him dead simply because he was a living rebuke to them and a witness to Christ's power and therefore a threat to their power and their position. And so the stage is now set. And Jesus takes matters into his own hands. He's going to force the issue by a deliberately planned demonstration knowing full well that the enthusiasm of the multitudes will enrage the hostile leaders at Jerusalem to such a degree that they will desire more intensely than ever to carry out their plan to kill him. We read now in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so the next day, the day following the, the supper uh, in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at Bethany, which would be Sunday of Passion Week, Palm Sunday, the large crowd heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And there are actually two crowds uh, in this scene which, which come together to form one massive multitude. There's the large crowd of pilgrims in the city of Jerusalem that come out toward Jesus as he approaches. And then look down at verse 17 for a moment. There we read, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So you have a crowd in Jerusalem coming out to meet Jesus when they hear he's coming, and you have a crowd that was already in Bethany that had witnessed Lazarus' resurrection coming with him toward Jerusalem. And in addition to that, the road would have already been filled with pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem for Passover, 
And so add to the crowd coming with Jesus, all the people on the road, among them would have been people from Galilee, familiar with Jesus from his years, his years of ministry. And so there's two massive crowds, one in front of him, coming toward him, one behind him and with him, moving toward Jerusalem, and, and the two are going to collide and converge like two giant waves. And John doesn't give us these details, but from the other Gospels, we learn that after leaving Bethany, where they had stayed the previous night, they next came to the little village of Bethphage. And at this point, Mark tells us that Jesus sent two of his disciples into the village to retrieve a colt that they would find tied. Matthew tells us that there were actually two animals, a donkey and her colt tied with her. And Jesus instructed the two unnamed disciples to bring them both. And Luke tells us that the colt had never been ridden. And so the disciples brought the donkey and her colt to Jesus. Then they, they took off their cloaks, put them on the colt's back like a saddle blanket. Jesus sat on the colt, and the ride into Jerusalem began. And John simply tells us in verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Jesus found it. He found it because he directed the disciples where exactly to find it. Because again, he's in absolute control of the situation. And so Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, John is there quoting from Zechariah 9.9. It's not the entire verse of Zechariah 9.9, but he's quoting from it. So Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. I mean, some 500 years earlier, Zechariah prophesied saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Zechariah was prophesying to a remnant of Israelites who had come back from exile to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and reestablish the city. It was a time of joy, but also of struggle, because they had endured failed king after failed king. And so Zechariah promises them a day when God would send his king to them. And he said in the rest of the verse, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Righteous and having salvation is he. He's the Savior King. And having salvation, bringing salvation, he's humble and, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he rode into the city that day. He was clearly proclaiming his kingship, his messiahship, his fulfillment of scripture, and his coming in peace to offer salvation to the people, just as Zechariah prophesied he would. And so Israel's true king, David's son and Lord, now officially presented himself to the nation in a clear fulfillment of prophecy. And the people of Jerusalem, and certainly the religious leadership, should have seen this immediately. I mean, here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, riding to Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. And God is, is saying to the people, you're, you're looking for a king, but it's, it's the wrong kind of king you're looking for. 
Here is my king. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. He's, he's not coming on a war horse or, or in a golden chariot as was common at the time. But he's coming on a donkey's colt. I mean, do you see what the Lord is doing? He is signifying what kind of king and kingdom his son has come into the world to exemplify and to bring into being. He is a king like no other king. Here is a king in whom there is this remarkable uniting of meekness and majesty and glory and humility, sovereignty and power, tenderness and gentleness. A king who said things like, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I mean, here is a king who subdues and brings sinners to himself by grace. The grace of who he is. And this grace that we see here in Jesus as he comes as the king riding on a donkey in a Jerusalem, this grace reaches its apex in the cross. And here is God's unique king. And he is coming to be sacrificed for sin, coming into the city not with riches but in poverty, not in majesty but in meekness, humble and mounted on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And in doing so, he's saying, I'm your king, but not a king like you think. And this was so different from what the people expected. Because they expected the Messiah, the king, to come wielding his power to overthrow Rome. But Jesus was not a conquering king, not the first time. He was not a conquering king who came to conquer Israel's enemies. That's not why he came the first time. Later, the Apostle John in in Revelation 19 sees Jesus coming again. And when he comes again, it's going to be on a white horse to judge and to wage war. When he comes again, he will come in great power and glory as the conquering king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he will absolutely destroy his enemies and establish his kingdom in which he will rule and reign in righteousness and with a rod of iron. But the first time he came, it was in meekness and humility to provide the way of salvation, a way in which sinful man could be reconciled to a holy God, which is why Zechariah's prophecy said, righteous and having salvation is he. And Jesus was riding to his death, which meant he was riding to victory, not only for himself, but for all who would ever believe in him. Jesus, every step, was intentional. It was calculated. He knew what he was doing and and where he was going and what it was going to mean for him. And then how it all started, we can't tell, but after Jesus mounted the donkey and began riding toward Jerusalem, somewhere along the way, many in the crowd from Bethany started taking off their cloaks and, and spreading them on the road in front of Jesus. This was actually an ancient custom reserved for high royalty. And this symbolic act represented submission to the king's majesty and authority. I mean, it was all a gesture of honor and reverence, suggesting that they recognized his claim to be the king of the Jews. 
And still others cut down leafy branches from trees and and laid them on the road. And as Jesus rode over the top of the Mount of Olives and started his descent then down toward Jerusalem, Luke tells us in Luke 19.37, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And so this whole multitude of his disciples, perhaps numbering in the tens of thousands, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. John tells us in in verse 13, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The crowd that came pouring out of the eastern gate of Jerusalem on their way to meet Jesus cut branches from the palm trees that lined the road as they proceeded on their way to welcome their king. And the Mosaic law stated in Leviticus 23 that branches of palm trees were to be used to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And later on, they came to be used to celebrate other feasts as well. But since the time of the Maccabees, Palm branches had become more of a a symbol of Jewish nationalism. The waving of palm branches symbolically conveyed the idea of victory over your enemy and or reception of a king, which indicates to us that the people mistakenly thought that Jesus would then and there bring Israel's national deliverance from their enemies. So this was more like a, a patriotic rally. The crowds were looking to Jesus as a political and and national Savior, not not a spiritual Savior. I mean, they were thinking, now at last, victory and prosperity would be theirs. You know, if this Jesus could raise a man from the dead who had been in the tomb four days, then there must be no limit to his power. And so, doubtless, he could overthrow the Romans and restore Israel to its former glory. And at this point, the two crowds, the one from Bethany, the other from Jerusalem, it's one massive throng of people. And as the entire procession descends the western slope of the Mount of Olives, the the cheering grows louder and, and louder. Expectations that something incredible was about to happen must have been at a fever pitch. And with the exception of the hostile Pharisees, the multitude was shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Their cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, comes from Psalm 118, which is the climax of the Hallel Psalms, which was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles, dedication and Passover. Hosanna literally meant save now. You know, save now, deliver us. But later it came to be used as merely a cry of praise to God, something like hallelujah. And so although the word technically means save now, the people were probably not asking God to do so. They most likely were using it merely as a cry of praise, not even really thinking about the meaning. And the last phrase in verse 13, even the king of Israel, is not from Psalm 118. 
but rather shows that the crowd understood Psalm 18 as referring to the Messianic King. And Matthew in his gospel tells us they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David, which of course was a common Messianic title, a reference to the promised Messiah, the King who would come from the line of King David. So the multitude was crying out for the Messiah's deliverance. They, they were in effect saying, Save now, great Messiah. Save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But when they shouted this, they were not thinking in terms of personal salvation. They were thinking in terms of political revolution and national restoration. They were thinking, now the Romans are going to be overthrown. We're going to have an earthly kingdom just the way that we have always wanted. And Jesus' credentials, his, his mighty works convinced them he was the Messiah. And their expectation was at any moment, at any moment, he was going to use his miracle power to crush Rome, reestablish David's throne, and fulfill all the promises of God through Abraham, David, and the prophets. I mean, they were certainly correct to hail Jesus as their Messiah, their King, but they didn't understand the nature and the timing of his kingdom. They didn't understand that he came to save his people, not from the Romans, but from their sins by shedding his blood on Passover. They didn't understand he had come to die. He had to die first. But they didn't understand that and would not accept it. Because they did not want a suffering Messiah. They wanted a conquering Messiah. They wanted a conquering king. Jesus was not the Messiah and King they were looking for. And when it became apparent that he wasn't going to rise up against Rome, when it was more evident that Jesus was angered more at their religion than with Rome, they wanted nothing to do with him and his kingdom. And so by the end of the week, when it became apparent that Jesus was not going to fulfill their hopes, they turned against him. And no doubt some of these very same people were among those who were shouting, crucify him. You see, the multitude that day had their own ideas about the Messiah, his kingdom, and what that would mean for them. But their ideas were not based upon the word of God. Their ideas were not based upon the scriptures. They would acclaim Jesus as long as they believed that he would satisfy their worldly desires and expectations, but they rejected and denounced him when he didn't deliver what they wanted and what they expected. They were looking for a Messiah that they had imagined in their own minds. And it was not the Messiah of Scripture. But let's not be too quick to condemn the multitude for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because their error is one of the most common errors in the professing church today. It's an error we would call triumphalism. Which is prevalent in many denominations, but generally found in Pentecostal and Charismatic circles. 
but it's prevalent in in many churches. It's a man-centered, not a God-centered theology. It's a theology in which the emphasis is on what God can do for man, what the believer can demand and get, you know, what is in it for the Christian. It's all about the Christian's desires, ambitions, and ultimately his world, rather than on God and God's demands upon man. Triumphalism focuses on the Christian life being one of of glory while neglecting that it's also a life of suffering. Now, while it's true that we are promised glory in this life, though usually not the kind we may crave, we are most certainly promised in Scripture suffering as well. But you see, triumphalism is the insistence that Jesus be now what the Bible says he will be and do in the future during the millennial kingdom. I mean, everyone wants to identify with the triumphant Jesus who overthrows the wicked and brings prosperity, peace, happiness, and freedom from pain, suffering, and hardship to his people. But we don't want to identify with the suffering Savior. But you see, Jesus' words for us are not, take up your crown and follow me. It's not what he said, is it? He said, take up your cross and follow me. He's talking about dying to self. Dying to self. Which there's so very little of today. This is not to say that this life has no triumphs or no blessings, no deliverances from suffering and pain. It does. But it is to say that the blessings our Lord has promised at his second coming must not be demanded before they take place. You know, Peter speaks to those who are suffering and uses uh, the example of Christ as our example. Peter says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. I mean, Paul also speaks of the certainty of troubles and suffering in this life, writing to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 through 3. Paul says, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, destined for afflictions. 
For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. And then in Philippians 1, Paul said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And of course, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. You see, we should not demand in the present what God has promised us in the future. He has promised us suffering in this life. And this obviously is not appealing to most. Right? And how much more so to to those of us living in a highly consumeristic culture. Nevertheless, the New Testament makes clear that it is fully natural for believers to suffer. Loved ones, we should expect it as part and parcel of living the Christian life in a fallen world. And yet somehow, this this suffering aspect is either not talked about or referred to as merely a footnote. But we do not need to look far for biblical support of the Christian call to suffer. Like the multitude that day, many people today have their own ideas of who and what Jesus is and what following him is all about, but they're not based upon the word of God. It's a Jesus and a faith that they have imagined in their own minds. And many people today are open to a Jesus they think will give them wealth, health, success, happiness, continual peace and prosperity and and relatively few problems and difficulties and all the other worldly things they want. And when they find out or realize the truth, when they encounter suffering and difficulty, they don't like it. And they turn on Jesus. Or they turn away completely. And if they turn away completely, then they only prove that their faith was never genuine to begin with. So let's not be quick to condemn the multitude. Because many in the church today are guilty of the same error. But for now, back in our text. With high emotion and and a mob-like frenzy, the multitude praised him as their Messiah and Deliverer. But not everyone in the crowd was participating. And there were a few Pharisees present, and they they were beside themselves as they listened to all of this mad cheering and, and adoration of Jesus. In fact, they were outraged because this was blasphemy to them. And Luke tells us some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then as the procession moved closer to Jerusalem with with the city before his eyes, Jesus began to weep. And it wasn't simply with tears running down his cheek. No, he he began to weep with a loud, deep sorrow. He, He literally began to sob over Jerusalem. And Luke gives us the sorrowful words of Jesus in Luke 19, 
verses 41 to 44. And there Jesus said, or there we read, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so while the crowds cheered and and praised him, Jesus loudly wept when he looked upon the city because he alone grasped the fact that while momentarily it appeared that Jerusalem was hailing him as their Messiah King, he knew what was really going on. He knew that he was really being rejected and that their rejection of him would lead to their destruction within a few short years. And of course, as you know, 40 years later it happened when Roman legions under General Titus destroyed the city and the temple, slaughtering tens of thousands and taking nearly 100,000 as slaves. Their rejection of God the Son would bring God's judgment upon them. And that's the way it always is when men reject Christ. And not only Jerusalem was guilty of rejecting Christ. Down through the centuries, multitudes have turned their backs on him and have perished in their unbelief. I mean, it's the awful, it was the awful reality of unbelief and the terrible horror of of the judgment that follows it that brought tears to Jesus' eyes and, and made him weep. And as he looked upon Jerusalem, he saw the hypocrisy, he saw the shallowness, he saw the rejection that was in their hearts, and he wept in sorrow and and great grief. And that's the heart of God, isn't it? He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked because he is by nature a Savior. So it was a day of high energy and and just crazy enthusiasm. The crowds hailed Jesus without without understanding his purpose. I mean, look, it was fairly easy for them to get caught up in in the messianic fervor in light of Jesus' miracles. I mean, they were just caught up in the emotion of the moment. But they hadn't grasped who Jesus really was, nor did they understand the nature of his kingdom. I mean, there was little genuine spirituality in the crowds that welcomed the Lord Jesus that day. I mean, no one that day was connecting the dots between Zechariah 9 and Isaiah 53. That Jesus was not a conquering king, that he was the suffering servant. They didn't understand their own scriptures. And let's not be too hard on them because that's true of so many people today. One of the great problems in the church today, especially in this country, is the biblical illiteracy of most people. And yet most people think they're, they're very informed and very knowledgeable. Yet they're unable to spot false teachers. They're unable to discern false doctrine when they see it. They don't know good Bible teaching when they hear it. 
mean, John tells us now in verse 16 that even the disciples didn't understand these things at first. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the Apostle John is looking back as he writes this, and he's saying of himself and the rest of the disciples, we didn't understand these things at first. You know, we didn't understand it. And the disciples were living on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb. We live on the bright side of the cross in the empty tomb, but they lived on the other side of it. And so they were unable to make the connections. They, they were unable to connect all of the dots. I mean, like us, the disciples were slow to understand divine things. Like us, they had to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we need to make note of the fact that John does not say his disciples did not believe these things. That's not what he said. They believed. John simply said they were not able as yet to understand. I mean, it's our privilege as well as our duty to believe all that God has said, whether we understand it or not. And there's going to be a lot of things that we don't understand. And the more we believe, the more likely God will be pleased to honor our faith by giving us understanding. I mean, that's what Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith we understand. But back to the disciples. At this point, they didn't understand. And the significance of all that happened would only be truly realized after Jesus' death and resurrection and after he returned to heaven. Later in chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says to his disciples, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. But when the Spirit comes, he will bring all things to remembrance. And the Holy Spirit enabled them to come to an accurate and full understanding of the truth of Jesus Christ, you know, to complete and, and to fill out the revelation brought by Jesus himself. And so it was only after Jesus was glorified, raised from the dead, ascended in the heaven, and the Holy Spirit had been given to guide them into all truth that they remembered. And then they began to connect all the dots and understand. Well, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, huge crowds gathered to welcome him. Many, many in the crowd had seen him raise Lazarus. We read now in verses 17 and 18, if you'll notice. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Those who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus continued to tell others about it, and John tells us that is why the crowd went out to meet Jesus. These two verses emphasize the hollow, superficial enthusiasm of most of the crowd. They were just curious. They were just thrill-seekers, you know, intrigued by the supernatural. They were just curious about Lazarus. They were curious about Jesus. They were not really interested in, in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They were just, again, fascinated by the supernatural. 
And so they flocked out to meet Jesus because they had heard he had done this great miracle. And perhaps uh, they were hoping that he was going to perform another, which they would be able to see firsthand. And so their supposed adoration was short-lived and their commitment shallow because they had a very superficial interest in Jesus. Their motive was curiosity rather than true faith. And in verse 19, John tells us the reaction of the Pharisees. The crowd was fickle, but the Pharisees, they were fuming. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And as the crowd grew in size and the hosannas grew louder, the Pharisees were just absolutely beside themselves. Nothing that they could say or do had the slightest effect. The world has gone after him, they said. Of course, uh, this is hyperbole. Because the world didn't even know about Jesus outside of Israel. But from their viewpoint, everyone had gone after him. I mean, they were envious of his popularity. They had been envious of his popularity every, uh, throughout his ministry. And the Pharisees' popularity had never been lower than at, than at the time of the triumphal entry. And they knew it. And their words reflect not only their intense anger and hatred, but also their utter, pan- their utter panic. But you see, reality is most of the people that day didn't truly believe in Jesus. The Pharisees didn't realize that those who truly worshipped him as the Son of God that day uh, were, were very few. But the Pharisees were right when they said, we are gaining nothing. In other words, this is getting us nowhere, and that's true. Because they could not stop the plan of God no matter what they did. They were only able to succeed as far as God allowed them in order to bring about his sovereign plan and purpose. And like the Pharisees, people can spend a lifetime resisting and rejecting Christ, only to discover in the end that they have accomplished absolutely nothing but their own destruction. As Jesus entered the city, Matthew tells us that the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That's the best they could do. I mean, they had just finished proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of David, who came in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But now that their emotions had subsided a little, they were hard-pressed to say who Jesus really was. The best they could do was, well, this, this is the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. No longer was he the Son of David, the great deliverer. Now he's just prophet. Just the prophet from Nazareth. And Mark tells us in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
I mean, talk about anticlimactic. All the excitement generated by Jesus coming into Jerusalem ends anticlimactically. Can't even pronounce it now. Ended anticlimactically. As he entered the temple just to look around and to leave. And as he looked around at his father's house, he saw that it had become a materialistic disaster zone. He saw commercialism. He saw money changers, uh, their exploitation. He saw corruption and injustice. His father's house had become a marketplace, prostituted for the sake of people making money. He saw pride and hypocrisy. He saw the religious ceremonies were being performed without any meaning whatsoever. But he didn't say a word. There was no great speech from the temple steps, no miracle performed. He went to the temple, looked around at everything, and as Mark tells us, since it was already late, he left Jerusalem and went out to Bethany with his 12 disciples. And so it all ended just as quickly as it had begun. And Jesus retraced the entire route of the triumphal entry over all the debris left on the road by the crowd. The little flock of his 12 disciples walking back to the house in Bethany with him, no doubt, were wondering, what was that all about? And there's no report in Scripture of any conversation. The walk back to Bethany must have been one of of silent bewilderment for the disciples and great sorrow for Jesus. And so as Jesus came riding into Jerusalem that Sunday in what we now call his triumphal entry, he was declaring to the Jewish people that he was their long-expected Messiah and King. And he did all of this as a vast multitude praised him loudly, shouting, Save now! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But you see, things are not always what they seem. What appeared on the surface to be an enthusiastic welcome was, in fact, a harbinger of warning. But more importantly, the triumphal entry was a deliberate act by Jesus to bring about the final events of his earthly life, which were ordained by God in eternity past. And that is why in only a matter of a few days, many of these same people would be crying out for him to be crucified. But that was the plan all along. Peter, in his message On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 said that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I mean, so nothing, nothing 
No accidents, no surprises, no unforeseen circumstances, not even the power and might of the Roman Empire could interfere with the step-by-step progress of the Lord Jesus Christ to the end and fulfillment of his work as a Savior of the world. It would all unfold precisely according to God's plan. When Jesus deliberately and dramatically orchestrated his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, forcing the Sanhedrin to respond on his own terms and on his timetable to bring about his purpose so that on Friday, on the Passover, as the Passover lambs were being slaughtered, he would be the Passover lamb sacrificed for the sins of the world. You see, the salvation of the world was not left to chance. The terrible suffering the Lord was about to undergo was what he came into the world to endure, and it was the Father's love and his own love for the Father and for his people that took him to Jerusalem, exactly the right place, at Passover, exactly the right time, to die on the cross, exactly the death the servant of the Lord must die. I mean, Jesus knew what he was doing and where he was going and what it meant. When the eternal Son of God was about to suffer in the place of sinful men, the great sacrifice for sin was about to be offered up, the great Passover lamb about to be slain, the great atonement for a world's sin about to be made. And Jesus would endure the holy wrath of God against the sin of man. There there was no other way the Lord Jesus Christ could deliver us from our sins and the judgment we deserve. Someone had to die. The wages of sin is death. So Jesus came to die. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's why he came to die. To pay the price for our sin that we might be reconciled to a holy God. And have our sins forgiven, be given eternal life. And the joy of knowing that someday we'll join him in the Father's house in heaven for all eternity. So there's much more to the triumphal entry than just a lot of enthusiasm and yelling and screaming. It's not what it appeared to be on the surface, but it's a turning point in the life and ministry of Christ and in the nation of Israel. They rejected their Messiah when he presented himself to them. And they would suffer the judgment of God for that rejection. And anyone here today who has has rejected Christ and is continuing to reject Christ as Lord and Savior, I want you to know that uh, if you die in that situation or that condition, if you die in that state, if you die in your sin, heaven is not your default destination. Heaven is not man's default destination. Rather, if a man or a woman die, they die in their sin. God will sentence them to an eternity in hell where they will pay for their sin throughout eternity. 
because that is the only just and right payment for sinning against an eternal holy God. But Christ has provided the way of salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the way has been opened. And so today I would encourage you to examine yourself very carefully. And if you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, I want to encourage you this morning to turn to Christ. Turn to him. Believe on him that you might receive the glorious salvation that Jesus has purchased for all who will ever believe in him. Let's stand and pray. It's your love that makes me see It's your word that comforts me by your blood we've been set free and Lord give to us a passion for your word that we may grow and walk in all your ways on behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro We hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you.